0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: I'm just repeating what we who live on the undecided U.S. history is saying that there needs to be a radical change that having a good heart and saying the right things falls short of what is required to change this culture and this society.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to Patreon.com/NotSeenRadio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/NotSeenRadio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Miguel Delatore. Torre. He is professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He's been described as a modern Amos-like prophet who speaks out against myopic American Christianity. He has published over 35 books, including his recent Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Reading the Bible from the Margins. Today we're talking about his most recent book, Decolonizing Christianity: Becoming Badass Believers. Professor Miguel de la Torre, welcome to Things Not Scene.
1: So glad to be here
0: with you. So I want to start with this phrase that we just heard in your description at the top of the show. You're described as speaking out against myopic American Christianity. I think that's probably a good place to start because some listeners will hear that and say, well, of course there's American Christianity. What does it mean to say that it's myopic? America is a Christian nation, isn't it? So how would you respond to that?
1: I would respond by saying that while America is a Christian nation, that Christianity that it embraces really justifies a white supremacy that um, creates all kinds of problems for people who are not white Christians. And when I say America is a Christian nation, obviously there could be pushback saying, but wait a minute, there's Jews and Muslims and, 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 and atheists and agnostic folks as well. and and that may be true, but because white Christianity is cultural and rooted in the culture, even individuals who are not Christian still embrace and still operate within this white Christianity.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, Even those who wouldn't identify necessarily as Christian, so you mentioned Jews and Muslims and Hindus, and even those who might not necessarily identify primarily as American, those who are here or who have been here but who strongly identify with other cultures, if I'm hearing you correctly, everybody is still swimming in the American sea, if you will, and swimming in that water affects us. Now, have I heard that correctly or would you say it in a different way?
1: No, I think that's correct. And I would say some are swimming with the tide of white supremacy and some are swimming against the tide of white supremacy. So, you know, I'm not trying to essentialize everyone in this country. But what I am saying is that this white Christianity that um, is intermingled with white supremacy is so rooted in this culture that it really has nothing to do with faith, It has nothing to do with Christianity. It has to do with social structures that reinforce the oppression of many for the benefit of the few.
0: This is really where I want to begin to dig in, because you just used the phrase that white Christianity really has very little to do with Christianity. And this was a question that, from reading both your book, Decolonizing Christianity, and your earlier book, Burying White Privilege, that this really is something that I'm glad to get a chance to ask you. Because it's clear to me that white Christianity is closely allied with white supremacy. That makes... Good sense to me, and you make that case very strongly. What I'm not so clear on is how allied or how connected white Christianity is to Christianity. Help me understand either that breaking point or that connection.
1: Let me begin by quoting a colleague of mine, James Cohn, who passed away a few years ago. In his book in the late 1960s, he wrote, All White Christianity is Satanic. And what he meant by that. Is Christianity that has nothing to say about Jim and Jane Crow, who has nothing to say about slavery, is not from the God who gives life, but rather from the forces of darkness that bring death? I would like to update James Cohn and say that any Christianity that has nothing to say about children in cages or about the dangers of driving with an air freshener hanging from your rear view window is not Christian. And and this way of being did not just begin now in the last couple of decades. It has been since the foundation of this republic, when the first slave was put into chain, when the first Indian was killed for the purpose of stealing their land, or in the name of a white God.
0: Well, this is very helpful. And so, if I'm hearing you correctly, there is no Christianity in white Christianity. And if that's the case, and I'm following the logic, how then would we define what true or authentic Christianity is? Or are you going to want to avoid making that kind of essentialist definition? Help me understand how you understand Christianity in this logic.
1: Whatever Christianity is, it is the faith that is practiced by the least of these, my brethren. It is the faith of the hungry and the thirsty, the naked, the immigrants, the one incarcerated. It is the faith of those who live in oppression. How they call out to their God, how they understand divinity is closer to understanding Christianity, assuming they're Christians, than white Christianity could ever be. It is the faith of the oppressed. And that faith may very well be Christian, and it may not be Christian. It really doesn't matter to me. I'm more concerned with how they understand divinity. So for white Christians to get saved, for white Christians to have a relationship with God they really need to reject the white God they've been following and instead bend their knees to the black God, to the um, Asian American God, to the queer God, to the indigenous God. And in the case of my book, and I'm writing, to the Latinx Jesus God.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to Professor Miguel de la Torre. He teaches at the Isle School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. We're talking today about his recent book, Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. This is helping me to understand what you're meaning by Christianity. You are saying that whatever is being practiced by those who are the most marginalized, the most oppressed in our particular situation, that's what you're going to identify as the Christianity that you're talking about. And in that, I hear, of course, the echoes of Matthew 25, the least of these, my brethren, and you've actually quoted that text earlier in our conversation. I can imagine that there are some who maybe have had seminary training or maybe have gone to church and they've heard their pastor who has had seminary training, and this does not exactly sound like what they have been told Christianity is. For them, Christianity would be right belief in the right sort of propositions, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the God that they worship is three in one and triune, and if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying those are not the markers of accurate, authentic Christianity. The markers of accurate, authentic Christianity arise from those who are very evident to us, but are not always visible to us, those who are oppressed. Now, these are my words, not yours. Have I heard you correctly, or would you say it in a different way?
1: You've heard me correctly, but I I would uh, expand that just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. In basically saying that those who are marginalized— are less concerned with doctrine, correct doctrine, um, what we call orthodoxy, and we're more concerned with orthopraxy, uh, correct practice, correct action. In other words, if a tree is known by its fruit, it doesn't matter what the tree believes or not believes, it is the fruits that define that tree. In the same fashion, if I have to be telling you I'm a Christian because of all the proper correct doctrines, then there's something wrong if you look at at my branches and don't see any fruits upon it.
0: So this is profound, but I imagine also, and you actually begin to address this in the book Decolonizing Christianity, I imagine you get some pushback from, if you will, white Christian spheres when you talk like this. Is that a correct assessment? Uh, Pushback,
1: death threats, yes. I've received all kinds of um, interesting um, responses to what I'm saying. But but let me be very clear, and and maybe this is a good point to say this. When I say white Christianity, I am not talking about skin pigmentation. I am talking about, when I say white Christianity, I'm talking about an ideology that supports and undergirds white supremacy. And there are obviously white people with white skin pigmentation that also have rejected this Christianity and are in solidarity with the least of these, with the oppressed. And by the same token, there are people of color who have their minds so colonized that they have embraced right Christianity, even to the point of going on national television and saying that there was no racism in America.
0: And when you use this phrase that their minds have been colonized, Help us to understand what that means, because I think that for some listeners, colonization might bring up mental images of people being whipped, being put into chains, and they might look around and say, I don't see anybody being whipped. I don't see anybody being put into chains. And they might say, so why would this professor be saying that minds are being colonized? It would make no sense to them. Help us understand what colonization of the mind means here. When I say colonization of the
1: mind, I'm emphasizing that the whips and the chains are not just to restrict the person physically, they're symbolically could restrict the person mentally. And what I mean by that, and then I'll give you an example. When I was a younger man, I was very active in embracing white supremacy, even to the point of changing my name to Mike in order to fit in. I saw myself through the eyes of my oppressors, which meant if Latino people were seen as being, as a former president says, having lots of problem bringing crime, bringing drugs, and they're also rapists, I saw myself that way and I tried to live a life that separated me from the way that I constructed my very identity based on how I was being seen by the dominant white culture. So to decolonize my mind is to begin to see myself with my own eyes, to define myself through my own symbols of my culture. And one of the major problems uh, that we see is that for many people of color, they understand spirituality and divinity through a Eurocentric theological lens that was designed originally uh, to maintain them oppressed. So this type of Christianity, this type of philosophy, this type of seeing has to be rejected before any kind of liberation can really occur among the marginalized of society.
0: And in fact, in your book, Decolonizing Christianity in the Fifth Chapter, you make the statement that once minds are colonized, bodies can be controlled with little effort. And so it occurs to me that you're not simply talking about freeing the mind, but you expect that there's also going to be material consequences to this kind of throwing off of these mental chains. Is, is that a fair assessment? Definitely, because individuals who see themselves
1: as being less than, simply because they belong to a certain race or ethnicity, then begin to discipline themselves and act in ways that are detrimental to themselves and to their communities. And we see this all the time among several individuals of color who vote, who enact policies, who push for legislation that is contradictory to their communities and to their own bodies. And for those individuals, I would argue that their minds are so colonized that they have believed the lie, that they are indeed less than. And the only reason that they could ever become superior is by becoming and adopting whiteness.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Miguel De La Torre. He's Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He's been described as a modern Amos-like prophet who speaks out against myopic American Christianity. He's published over 35 books, including Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Reading the Bible from the Margins. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. We'll be back in a moment. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of discussions, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Miguel de la Torre. He's Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He's been described as a modern, Amos-like prophet who speaks out against myopic American Christianity. He's published over 35 books, including Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Reading the Bible from the Margins. Today we're talking about his recent book, Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. One of the things that struck me about your book, Decolonizing Christianity, is that it is written in many ways in the shadow of Donald Trump and the Donald Trump presidency. And what's interesting to me is about midway through the book, you acknowledge this and you say, I'm, I'm writing from a particular historical moment. Who knows what's going to happen with the next president of the United States? Nevertheless, whoever else is president It's not going to change the fact that these issues that Donald Trump has surfaced will still be with us. And I'm seeing evidence of that everywhere that we look. When we look, for example, at the Republican Party, they still have not let go of the lie that the election was stolen somehow by Joe Biden. They still have not let go of the lie somehow that there's election fraud and these kinds of things. And so I'm seeing the long shadow of Trumpism. And I'm wondering, as we're entering now this next period where it seems like the narrative has shifted, what are we missing in the narrative if we think that America has moved on from the worst aspects of Donald Trump and Trumpism?
1: One of the things I think I argue in the book is that Trump really is unimportant. He is um, just a figure that happens to uh, embody this white supremacy that has been part of this country since its foundation. So there's nothing really unique about Donald Trump as far as the continuation of white supremacy is is concerned. However, the Trumpism this new manifestation of white supremacy will continue regardless if there is a Donald Trump or there is not a Donald Trump. He probably will not run again for office, but everyone else who's planning to run for office on the Republican side basically are uh, Trump 2.0. And when I was writing the book, my concern was that we were spared some of the worst of Trump purely because of his incompetency. What would happen if you get a cunning politician who truly knows how to work the system, who brings this Trumpism with them and is able then to truly change our social structures? And we don't have to wait for the next election. As you mentioned, the uh, voting suppression laws that are being passed throughout this country is truly moving us to an apartheid, Trumpish nation that has little to do with democracy and a return to a a new form of a Jim and Jane Crow. You know, even though I was writing the book not knowing what the future was, just seeing what was happening, anyone could foretell that we're nowhere close to getting rid of the impacts of Trumpism. And in fact, the true danger is, is Biden just a, a, a reprieve, you know, just a moment to catch our breath before it becomes worse again?
0: You you made a statement a moment ago, what would it have been like if Donald Trump had actually been competent and some of his worst actions were were limited by his incompetence? I'm going to make a connection and I I would like to hear if I've made the connection successfully. If we want to see an example of what a kind of competent exploitative political machine looks like. I think that your book, Decolonizing Christianity, makes a very strong case that we need to look no further than the institutions of white Christianity, particularly white evangelical Christianity, that have been operative for the past 60 or 70 years. Now, when I make that connection, I'm thinking about people like Tim LaHaye. I'm thinking about people like Jerry Falwell Jr., who you both of whom you talk about in your book, but who have created these kind of public relations machines and money-making machines, and they've bent some of the educational establishments to their will. And they've managed to create not just cottage industries, but actual kind of corners of industry that traffic in a kind of soft misogyny or even an, an overt misogyny, a kind of soft racism or even an overt racism, a kind of soft heterosexism or even an overt heterosexism. When I make that connection, am I on to the right track? Is evangelical Christianity, is white Christianity the proving ground for the kind of fascist politics that we saw gestured towards but not fully realized in the Trump administration?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. And not just white evangelicalism. I I don't want to let off the hook my white Protestant, uh, white Catholic, and white Mormons, who also overwhelmingly, the majority of which, voted for Trump. So it's not just the evangelical true, 81% of them voted for Trump, the vast majority of them did, but the other groups were just as loyal to Trump. Um, now, now saying that, and, and, I, and I think you're absolutely right, since the 1940s, and the book goes into this in greater detail, you have had this merger of not just uh, white Christianity with capitalism, but undergirded with a soft racism, to use your words, to make sure that you could get these southern states, the the famous uh, southern strategy, to vote Republican and hence stay in power. In fact, since George Bush, George Walker Bush, the first Bush, no Republican has won a majority for the presidency except for his son's second term. But yet we have had multiple Republican presidents because they embrace a white supremacy that no longer is viable. So what they're doing, and here's where I think it's no longer a soft racism. The mask is off. Thanks to Trump, you don't have to be politically correct. And you can be very overt and very out there and very um, clear of your objective by passing these voting suppression laws. Well, before it would have been more masked. now it's, it's quite open and, and, and there's no need to hide what's going on.
0: If I may ask then, who benefits when we talk about these kinds of white supremacies? why would christianity in any form benefit from an alliance with that what do christians in america get from this kind of political partnership with white supremacy
1: well when you say what do christians get we again we have to be careful not to conflate them with people of faith what do white people get who happen to use christianity to justify their positions what they get is holding on to the power of political power, economic power, social power, that was their birthright with the foundation of this country. I mean, the, the, the hardest for them is that you're having more black and brown and Asian people and indigenous people all of a sudden demanding that these words of freedom and liberty also apply to them. So in a zero-sum mentality, they think that by ensuring the rights of people of color, they somehow lose their own rights. And that fear factor, which is manipulated by one particular political party, motivates them to make this satanic alliance with a white supremacy, thinking that it would basically... Um, ensure their power. I mean, when, when the, um, those individuals in Charlottesville were marching, they were saying, well, Jews will not replace us. And when you hear the Carlson talking about the great replacement theory, that all these brown people from south of the border is going to replace us at the poll and we're going to lose our America and what we always were. So these type of rhetorics basically pushed white people who are fearful of the future to vote for things that are against their very interest. My former chair of my dissertation, John Reigns, would always say people like to dream upward but blame downward. So while these white Christians are blaming people of color for the downward economic spiral, the ones they need to be looking at and the one they need to be pay attention to are that 1% that's above them. But they don't because they dream of joining them. And instead, they blame downwards of those who are of color.
0: Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Miguel de la Torre. He's professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. We're talking today about his recent book, Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. So, I'm going to suppose that some of my listeners at this point have heard the earlier part of our discussion and they're sitting pretty smug right now thinking, yes, well, I'm not a racist. Yes, well, I'm not a white supremacist. I'm a person who has friends of many different colors. I'm very connected to the politics of this. And I'm thinking now of a a kind of good white liberal listener. And one of the things that I really was convicted by when I read your book, Decolonizing Christianity, is you don't let readers, listeners like that off the hook. And I want to get into that discussion by talking about a particular Christian theologian that I think is a favorite of the kind of listener, the kind of reader that we're talking about, the kind of white liberal Christian who thinks themselves very socially progressive, and that's the theologian Jürgen Moltmann. And you have some things to say towards the end of your book about I'm going to say the dangers of Jürgen Moltmann and some of his theology, maybe you wouldn't say it that way, but I'm curious if you would, how is your critique, if you could give us your critique of Jürgen Moltmann here? I wouldn't happy to, but I, I kind of heard two questions there, answering the
1: listener who is thinking that they're not a racist, that they're okay because they have, you know, black friends, and they, and they march for Black Lives Matter and a critique of Mokman. So let me begin with the latter, but I do want to come back to the former because I think that's a very important observation. Mokman, of course, is well known for his theology of hope and where that God keeps God's promises and therefore, no matter how bad things are, we could always hope in a future and where at the end, we could look back at history and we could see God was with us all along. The problem with that is that it may work great for white people who are middle class, who will always be able to use that middle class to accomplish whatever they may hope hope to accomplish. But for the vast majority of the world, in where thousands of children die each day of hunger and preventable disease, there really is no hope. And by imposing hope upon them, It saves us from having to do anything to interact with this situation so as to work in preventing the deaths of of the vast majority of of, of the world's population. So what I argue is that hope is a middle-class privilege, that in fact, for the vast majority of the marginalized world, it is hopeless. Neoliberalism and capitalism has won. And because they have one, thousands, tens of thousands of people die each and every day of hunger and preventable diseases. I also argued that once we embrace this hopelessness, then we have nothing to lose. And when we have nothing to lose, that's when we become more radical and could bring about change. That's the badass part of the book. How do we interact with society in the way that brings change? And I would argue it's when we realize that all is lost. And no matter what we do, we're going to be persecuted and killed. So we might as
0: well do the the most radical thing possible. I want to make sure that I've heard you correctly, and I want to make sure that my listeners have heard you correctly. So if I'm following you, hopelessness, when you are saying that we should embrace that, that's not a sign of defeat. That's actually, if I'm hearing you correctly, the most true moment of liberative resistance when we have given up anything that can be used against us. Am I hearing that right? Or have I got some?
1: Absolutely. And think about the people who walked through the gates of Auschwitz, where the sign was over the gate saying, work will set you free. We know that was a lie. But it was a lie intended to create hope on those walking through those gates. And somehow I keep my head down. If I don't make waves, if, if I follow the rules, maybe I'll survive this death camp. The reality is no, the vast majority ended up being exterminated and genocide. So that was a hope that basically domesticated my domesticated the people and, and they impose upon themselves their own discipline. But once I realize it is hopeless, that's when I refuse to follow the rules that are designed to keep me in line. So it's not a hope that, uh, as Moltmann would say, the opposite of hope is despair. And despair means, like you said, you roll up in a fetus position and you gnash your teeth. I argue that the opposite of hope is desperation. And desperation
0: propels us To radical action. And so once that radical action is embraced, it's clear that you would like to see society change. But you also are saying very clearly in your book, Decolonizing Christianity, that the kinds of images of change that we've been given from particularly white European philosophers and white European theologians— are to be rejected. So where do we go then, since I'm literally trained in all of those images? And so I'm asking you seriously as a person who wants to know where to go for other images, where do I go for images of what this liberation looks like and what this change looks like, since I'm believing you when you say that I shouldn't necessarily be looking to the thinkers that I've been trained in all these years?
1: The thinkers that you and I have been trained in all these years in order to get our doctorates and our, and our minister, basically are same thing that create the very structure and reinforces the structure that support white supremacy. No, we cannot look to them because to follow their thinking is to reinforce our own oppression. So we have to look to thinkers from the margins of society, from the underside of history, Thinkers in this country who are African American, who are Latinx, who are indigenous, who are Native American, who are Muslim, who are queer, who are women, especially women of color. Those are the individuals we need to be in conversation with because they have what we like to call in theology an epistemological privilege, which is a fancy way of saying they have a better grasp of reality because they know what it means to live in a culture that oppresses them which everyone knows that, but they also know how to live as among the oppressed. And that double consciousness, what W.E. Du Bois can talk about, is what provides them with a better understanding of what's going on and what needs to be done. So those are the individuals and the thinkers
0: and the activists that we need to be following. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Miguel de la Torre. He's professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He's been described as a modern Amos-like prophet who speaks out against myopic American Christianity. He's published over 35 books, including the book Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Reading the Bible from the Margins. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries one-click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Miguel de la Torre. He's professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Isle of School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He's been described as a modern Amos-like prophet who speaks out against myopic American Christianity. He's published over 35 books, including Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Reading the Bible from the Margins. Today we're talking about his most recent book, Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. Well, before the break, we were sort of on the first part of a two-part question, and you had said that you would like to come back to the other part of the question, and that was, what do we say to the listener who considers themselves, or the reader who considers themselves to be a, a good, liberal, progressive Christian who marches, who says, I have black friends, and who thinks that somehow they're insulated from the kinds of effects of white supremacist Christianity that you've been describing in your book, Decolonizing Christianity. Christianity.
1: So, so let me turn that question around just a little bit, and instead of talking about race, because that's such a hot topic, let me look at myself and talk about sexism. I could describe myself as a flaming feminist. I've marched with women, I speak out for women's rights, I am you know, very active in, in equality, in gender equality. So I could honestly say, hey, I don't have a sexist bone in my body. I'm, I'm with women. You know, ain't I a great guy? But the reality is that society is sexist for me. And because society is sexist for me, I am complicit with that sexism. So in a very real sense, I am still a sexist. Now, I can say I'm a recovering sexist. I'm trying not to be a sexist. But, between society being sexist for me and decades of being raised to being misogynist, how can I not be complicit with sexist structures? And at any moment, if something happens that threatens my economics, my my social position in society, I could always remain silent and not risk anything by speaking out against sexism. In a way, I could fall off the wagon. In the same way that I am a sexist, regardless of what I believe and regardless of my activism, every person with white skin pigmentation is a racist because how can you not be? Society is racist for you and and everyone in this culture have been raised with racist ideals. In the same way, as a cisgendered male, I am a heterosexist because I am privileged by my orientation. So the issue is not, you know, so so when I hear white people say, well, I'm not a racist, I don't have a racist bone in my body. What that tells me is that they really have not examined their very identity and their complicity with racism. And that scares me more than people who are just
0: overt racers. Because at least I know where they're coming from. Let me see if I've understood the mechanics of this, because this is very profound and also exceedingly clear. So society is oppressive on my behalf. Society does the oppression for me, even if I choose not to get my hands dirty with participating in the oppression. Even if I am saying I'm not a white supremacist, the society is doing it for me. Therefore, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, it's incumbent upon me if I truly want to be. With Christ, if I truly want to be a Christian, it's incumbent upon me not to simply be passive in a society that is going to be oppressive for me, but to be actively going to the margins, to be actively identifying with people who are queer, people who are of color, people who are different from the privilege that I've been born into, and that active identification, that active listening, that active solidarity, that's what begins to enact the Christian mechanism. Am I making the connection correctly, or would you say it in a different way? No, you
1: are. And if we want to be Christian using Christian language, we could say, we are all sinners. We all for short. We need to confess our complicity so we can become new creatures. If you want to use that spiritual language, that's what I'm calling for.
0: I think that this is going to scare some people, because I think that they believe that simply having their hearts directed in the right place is enough. If I just turn my eyes to Jesus and I have good thoughts towards my neighbor and even good thoughts towards my enemy, however I consider that enemy to be, that's all that Jesus requires of me. I'm hearing you saying very clearly, no, more is required of you. Am I hearing that correctly?
1: Not only are you hearing me say this, this is specifically what most communities of color are saying. I'm just repeating what we who live on the underside of U.S. history are saying, that there needs to be a radical change that having a good heart and saying the right things falls short of what is required to change this culture and this society.
0: It's a very interesting move that you just made. You said, I'm not saying this. I'm actually repeating what other communities of color have already been saying. We just haven't been listening. There are points in your book, Decolonizing Christianity, where you call out certain white scholars who have done exactly that, who have made, in your words, kind of small fortunes repackaging and repurposing the cries of despair that certain communities of color have been saying and making it palatable to white america now maybe i'm overstating it but i I think i'm quoting it pretty clearly i'd love to hear more about that and share that with my listeners
1: no i I think you're absolutely right we we live in a society in where the voices of the marginalized are ignored up to a point until they could become profitable And then you have a lot of white scholars literally saying what marginalized communities have been saying for decades, and and they're the ones that get to do the talk show hosts and uh, shows, and they're the ones that uh, books uh, become bestsellers, and they're the ones who make a small fortune, while those who have been speaking from their pain are ignored because they obviously cannot be objective because they're from those groups. So every time I speak about, let's say, immigration, for example, I'm just dismissed as an angry Latino. But when white scholars use my material and speak about immigration, they're embraced as providing tremendous insight into this difficult topic.
0: So many thoughts are going through my head right now. One of them is the phenomenon that we saw in the 1950s and 1960s where African-American music was repurposed and repackaged by artists like Pat Boone and made palatable to white audiences that way. But I'm also thinking of... The many ways in which, just as you've said, these sorts of things become much more comfortable and much more acceptable once they come out of the mouth of someone like me rather than the mouth of someone like you. So for me, who is in a position trying to listen to you, but also very much as a teacher wanting to use your words in my classes... What is a way that I can bring your voice and the voices of others into those kinds of conversations and not be involved in the kind of softening, co-opting, profiting from that you're describing?
1: Well, the way I do it, for example, I am very influenced by womenist thinking. So rather than me sharing with my students a womenist thoughts as though they're somehow my thought, or somehow I've arrived at them. I always talk about, as Katie Cannon writes, as as Saison Floyd Thomas writes, as Emily Towns writes, as, as Cheryl Cook-Dugan writes. In other words, I am quoting the woman in Scotland. I am lifting up the book that they wrote and what they said, and I'm bringing their voice into the conversation. That's the correct way of doing it. Uh, the incorrect way of doing it is just, repeating what they say without giving them the necessary recognition so that it sounds like it's coming from me. So it's not just white people who do this. Obviously, men do this as well, as many other groups of people do this. So how, are we, how do we do our scholarship with integrity and bring in all these other voices that usually are
0: us? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Miguel De La Torre. He's professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. Today we're talking about his recent book, Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers. well, what you've been saying just now, the very intentional way that you're talking about quoting and even you talked about physically lifting up the book of someone like Stacey Floyd Thomas or Emily Towns and saying, as the womanist scholar Emily Towns would say, doing that kind of quotation – It makes me think about stories and makes me think about who gets to tell their own stories and the way in which our culture will oftentimes take our stories and narrate them back to us. A person says, I have been oppressed by the police. And that gets narrated back in media. This person was a thug and deserved what they got. I'm wondering how you think about storytelling and narration and the importance of people being able to own their own stories. I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'd love to hear it.
1: I'm a strong believer in in the sharing of stories. If you could hear my story, you know, my life story, you could begin to see my pain and you could begin to see my struggles. And, and that sometimes have more of an impact than me using a uh, philosophical methodology to explain what's going on. Um, I believe that so strongly that I'm just finishing a, a quasi autobiography that I'm hoping to publish that is nothing but the sharing of story of what it means to be an undocumented immigrant in this country. Because that infleshes what we're talking about right now. It allows the, the abstract thoughts to take on form and take on flesh. And one thing that I've learned from specifically Asian American groups and African American groups is this narrative storytelling, which really helps me, at least, understand some of these concepts.
0: One of the ways that I've been describing you uh, when I've been introducing you and reintroducing you is with this phrase that you've been described as an Amos-like prophet. Listeners may not recall readily the story of Amos and Amaziah, but Amos— is compelled to come and speak his truth to the king there in the Northern Kingdom, and he's confronted by the priest, a a religious figure, who says, just go back where you come from. We don't want your kind here. We don't need your prophets around here. And then Amos replies, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I'm instead a a dresser of sycamores and a herder of cattle. And, And I'm thinking about that in terms of, we're talking about stories, and you teach at the Isle of School of Theology, I teach at the Institute of Pastoral studies. So a lot of our students are going to go on to become preachers. And I'm wondering how you would think that this kind of message of badass Christianity would preach from a pulpit. What would that sermon sound like? First of all, I think we need to preach these type of messages. As you all know, our
1: churches are dying. Millennials and Gen Xers are not interested in our churches. The hypocrisy that these churches have Main uh, maintained are no longer acceptable, and I think what we, you know when I, as I speak to younger groups, what I keep hearing is that they want the church experience to be real, so what's real is dealing with how do we live this message of faith that we believe in, and the way to do it is 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 through this badass Christianity. so going back to Angus, as you mentioned, he is from south of the border. Okay. If, if Amos was to come uh, to the United States today, he would have been in our culture picking fruit. He would be in detention. He would be separated from his children who we put into cages. How does Amos change with what's going on in this country today so that we could proclaim Amos a pretty badass message to to the priests of the height of the king? And I think that way of presenting Scripture, that way of entering into the story of Scripture, relating it to those who are marginalized in our own society today, is probably the most effective way of bringing the Bible to life.
0: Some are going to hear that and they're going to say, well, you're just advocating bringing politics into the pulpit. And I'm going to venture to say that your response would be, it's all political. It's always been political. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Have I got it right, or would you say it in a different way?
1: No, I think uh, that's exactly what I was thinking of saying when you were asking the question, that politics is already in the pulpit. It's a politics of white supremacy. It's a politics of maintaining the status quo, which is deadly and death-dealing to communities of color. The politics is already there. What we're calling for is not politics, we're calling for liberation. And liberation, as in in the Greek, is the same root word as salvation. To be saved is to be liberated. So the message of liberation is the very essence of the Christ story, who came to save, to liberate, those who who were dispossessed.
0: Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, what I got taught— When I went to seminary, what I got taught when I went to grad school was... Hey, it's your job to get educated so that when somebody asks, you can tell them what the good news is and you can open up the Bible and you can interpret for them what the good news is. What I'm hearing you saying flips that on its head. It's not my job, given the fact that I've been privileged, that I've been educated, to go and tell someone who is suffering what the good news is. It's my job instead to go to someone who is suffering and hear from them how the good news is there manifesting in their life and then to change my life so that I'm in solidarity with that. Am I hearing that correctly? I couldn't have said it better.
1: When I, I took a group of students to Cuernavaca, Mexico, and where we went to a squatter village and, and the woman that, you know, and I, and, I, and I remember I was asking the woman questions about her faith, who's God, who's Jesus, who's the Virgin Mary, and her answers were horrific, They were really terrible answers. Theologically, it was scary. And in the middle of the conversation, her kid uh, runs in and gives her like eight vessels that he uh, made by selling chiclet. And she took one vessel and put it aside. And I asked her, what's that vessel for? And she goes, that's for the poor. And in that moment, she taught me more about the message of the gospel than any book that I have ever read or I've ever written, because here you have the least of the least, the most economically oppressed, taking care of those who are economically worse than her. So my job is not to correct her theology. My job is to imitate her because she understands the gospel better than I do.
0: You went to the least of the least, and your heart was pierced by the kindness and the solidarity shown by this woman for the poor as she was having solidarity with those that she saw in her own community that had even less than her – I flip that around and I see that particularly American society has created people who are literally insulated by their money. They are so thick with billions of dollars that they never have to listen or even acknowledge the existence of those who are suffering if they don't wish to. How can we bring this message to them? You know, I'm always asked, how do we speak truth to power?
1: And by here, power, those are the billions and the riches. To be honest with you, I'm more interested in speaking truth to the powerless. Those who are powerful, those who have these billions, already know that they're disconnected. And they don't want to be connected. It is the powerless who I'm afraid, as we talked earlier, their minds becoming colonized by the powerful. So I would... In the book that I wrote, the the one that you read, in the very beginning, I say I'm not writing it to white people, and here I'm talking about skin pigmentation. I'm writing it to other members of communities of color because we need to have this conversation among ourselves. How do we change this world? Because those powerful individuals, even if they their hearts are also pierced, they're not going to necessarily change anything. And I'm thinking of the rich young world in the back of my mind here. They'll just walk away saying,
0: Well, Miguel De La Torre, I'm so thankful that you have given me an opportunity to listen in to the conversation that you were wanting to have with these readers on the margins, these readers of color. Your book, Decolonizing Christianity, really was the book that I needed to read right now. I am, I'm rethinking a lot of my teaching. I'm rethinking a lot of how I'm identifying myself with Christianity, partly as a result of reading your book. I'm incredibly grateful that you took the time to write it. I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk with me and my listeners about it today. Thank you so much for having
1: me. I really enjoyed this time we had together.
0: We've been speaking today with Miguel de la Torre. He's Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He's been described as a modern Amos-like prophet who speaks out against myopic American Christianity. He's published over 35 books, including Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity, and Reading the Bible from the Margins. Today we've been talking about his most recent book, Decolonizing Christianity, Becoming Badass Believers.